Many of you would know that I've been teaching a reasonably long-running series on the book of Philippians. Um, this is the, the second last lesson um, that we'll be doing. So, and continuing that, I do believe that um, through the entire process, the Lord has been in it, and, and I, I believe that uh, this lesson this morning um, fits in exactly where it should. And, and that the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. All right. Um, so, we've been looking at Philippians. We've looked at the theme of the book of Philippians, which is that the church should always be moving forward in unity and not backward, no matter the trials or the persecution. Um, if we have a look at the next slide, um, I do this every time. This is just a map of the general area. Uh, on the right-hand side, you've got uh, Israel, um, Jerusalem there at the bottom. And up on the top left, um, just to the right of the word Macedonia, is uh, Philippi. And that um, the Lord called the Apostle Paul across, a Macedonian man, uh, in a dream. And... And the church of Philippi was born from that, uh, obeying that call to go. The city of Philippi uh, was very much a Roman colony. It was liberated by the Romans um, and given all of the privileges of being uh, Roman citizens, the people there. So it was a little Rome. Um, it was Rome in its thinking and its attitudes um, and in the way that it acted and reacted to people, and also the gospel. Rome didn't like uh, the truth, the, the church. And so, therefore, there was a lot of persecution in the church or against the church of Philippi. And so Paul was writing from prison um, in Rome <laughs> at this time, and so he was, he was uh, talking to the Philippians um, in their situation. Our next slide, please. The last lesson, we finished with Philippians chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was relating the walk with God with the, the, the competitions, the worldly competitions that were going on at that time. He was saying, we need to press forward. We need to race. We need to, to struggle to do what God's will and, and to, to, um, to reach that mark that He has set for each one of us. So if we go on to the next verse, um, verse 15, let us therefore so it's tying it to what he just talked about. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Once again, we're going to follow very closely to Brother Brian Kinsey's book, Philippians, The Bride's Prize. So everyone who competes in any athletic event knows that there are officials who watch the game for violations of the rules. It is imperative that the runners or the players must play by the rules or, as Paul said it 
in 2 Timothy 2 and 5, they must learn to strive lawfully. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. You get disqualified if you don't go by the rules. If these rules are not obeyed, the players can be disqualified from competing and even removed from the games. Not even, only are they denied their trophy or prize, they can be banished from games never to return. So every player must abide by the rules. Paul spoke concerning this in verses 15 and 16. Every believer must remember and pay attention to the spiritual rules found in the Word of God. These guidelines must be obeyed or the official, the judge, will disqualify us from the race. We can't try to serve God in our own way by ignoring the things that God has put in his word. We need to follow him and his word. Regarding Paul's mention of as many as be perfect, he wasn't talking to only those who are already perfect, which is nobody. But he was talking to those who wanted to be perfect to those that would be perfect, who wanted to follow Jesus Christ as best as they can. And that should be everyone in the church. That should be everyone. Everyone wants, everyone should have that desire to be closer to Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be perfect like Jesus was and is. Philippians uh, 3.16, next slide please. Nevertheless, where to we have already attained or reached, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. At the very least, Paul said, let us all live up to the level of faith that we have already experienced. Let's not go back. Let's not go back to the way we used to be. Let's not let things slip and slide, but let's keep walking in strong, in faith, and in power with him, the way that we know. Let us walk by the same rule that we have already attained or reached. To continue the analogy of the athlete, he was warning the church against the danger of breaking training, that is, losing the strength and conditioning already attained by diligent training. It's no good if you're diligently training again and again and again for a long period of time and then you slack off. You're not going to be able to do the same things. When we talk about it in front of the physical sense, you're not going to be able to reach the same heights. And it's the same in the church. If we slack off, if we start to go back, if we if we stop praying, if we stop reading the Word, we're not going to be spiritually attuned. We're not going to be able to help others like we used to be able to. We're not going to be able to follow God's Spirit like we used to be able to. Paul spoke in similar terms to the Corinthians. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. They do the right things. They make sure that the, the, very, the things that will help them are done. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we are incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. There's a training. He knows what to do. He's not just beating the air. He's not just practicing or pretending to do the right things, but he knows what he's doing. He's got the focus. He's got what he needs to, to move forward. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. An athlete who broke training was disqualified from competition. And Paul wanted no such outcome for the Philippian Christians. Sure, they were going through persecution, continual constant persecution. But that was not an excuse 
for them to break from training, to stop from following God. The bones of those who failed God litter the graveyard of Bible history. And there are too many stories to relate of those who started well and began the race but ended up a failure because they refused to obey the rules. They thought the rules did not apply to them anymore. There are many people who have left the church that really sad stories. They lost, they've lost out with God because they thought they knew better, because they thought that the rules did not apply to them anymore. If we look at Lot and his wife in Genesis 19, Samson in Judges 16, King Saul in 1 Samuel 28, and in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. It could happen to any one of us. None of us are exempt. Just because we've been faithful all the way up until now does not mean that we cannot lose it, (laughs) that we cannot go back, that we cannot get a bad attitude and and leave the church. We need to take care of our hearts and we need to be very careful what what we let affect us. We must heed the instruction given to the Hebrews. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin gets a hold of you. Sin warps your mind and and causes you to think things that are not true. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 to 14. To win this race, we must persevere to the end. This was the future prospect that motivated Paul and it can motivate us also. We want to be there when the day comes. We want to be walking with God faithfully when he calls his church back to be with him. That is, that is the thing we're looking for. That is the end game. That is where we want to be when he comes back. Next slide, please. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example or example. Paul had already used his own experience of suffering as an example of imitating the life of Christ in chapter 1 of Philippians and verses 21 to 26 and his pre-Christian life as an example of the futility of, of righteousness from works. Uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Here, he explicitly held up his own life and behavior as an example to follow. Be followers together of me, he said. In other words, do as I do. Follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. Just as there were some in Thessalonica who imitated Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They followed Paul as he followed Jesus. And there was an impact that they had 
by doing that because they were going in the same direction. They were following Jesus in the right way. And he urged those at Philippi to do the same. This was not arrogance on Paul's part, but confidence that he was living up to the high calling of Christ. Paul understood that everyone needs a coach, an example, and guide. And he offered himself to the Philippians as that good example. Further, he advised them to mark them which walk according to that example and imitate them also. We need to realize those and recognize those who walk for Jesus, the ones that are doing it in the right way, not just ones that look good, but the ones that live up to the example of being like Jesus and who walk like Jesus. And we need to walk like they walk. There are many great examples of followers in this church and in in the church across Australia. We need to respect and we need to say, Lord, help me to walk like they walk. Lord, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to follow. That is where I want to be at the end. Next verse, please. For many walk of whom I have told you often and even now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul wanted the Philippian believers to find good examples of right living and behavior to pattern their lives after, but he also warned them, even with tears, that there were many bad examples that should never be followed. Anyone who disdained the cross by teaching a different gospel than what Paul and Timothy taught and lived were to be avoided. That's why we should be very careful about who we listen to on the internet. Some preachers can seem to have it all together, but if they're not preaching the truth, then they need to be avoided. They need to, 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 to just be out, out of our lives because we need to be in truth. We need to follow Jesus the way that his word says and not the way that some preacher who we have no idea where they come from or what they're doing in their own lives is saying. And probably not living. When people decide to go astray, that is one error. But when they decide to lead others astray, that is a whole new dimension of evil. Paul described these people in vivid terms that should not be taken lightly. We've probably all seen examples of the kind of people Paul warned against. For false teachers continue to be a problem within the church and will be until Jesus comes. That's why we should know those who labor among us, as 1 Thessalonians 5 and 12 says. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We need to know those who are following Jesus among us. Some teach bondage. They want us to, to live by the letter of the law. And while others teach that we should be permissive, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness or lust, both extremes need to be avoided. God has called us to a balanced walk. God has called us to follow him in the spirit of what is in his word. Next slide, please. Verse 19, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Lest the Philippians should become frightened, Paul quickly added that such enemies of the cross would be easily recognizable 
and would face a certain end. He stated four marks of these false teachers. First, their end was destruction. It is important to realize the sovereignty of God over all things. Jesus will return to judge the earth. In Acts 10.42, and he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, or the alive and the dead. No enemy of the cross will escape his notice or his justice. There will be times when those who ignore or subvert the gospel will appear to have the upper hand. Perhaps it seemed that way at times to Paul, especially as he sat chained in a Roman prison. Perhaps it seemed that way to the Philippians who were struggling to keep the true faith at a time when other congregations were falling into error. Sometimes it seems that way together when biblical truth is often set aside in favor of culturally acceptable attitudes and practices. It doesn't matter. The end of all who oppose Christ is the same. Just because the judgment doesn't come now does not mean that there is not going to be a judgment. Second, these opponents of the cross worship their belly. Paul's graphic image could well apply to the sin of gluttony, but it's likely he meant the sins of the flesh in a more comprehensive way. These false teachers were intent on fleshly things. For some, that literally meant a self-indulgent lifestyle, as Paul warned Timothy. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 4. The simplest way to detect an inauthentic leader is to watch for the signs Paul listed there. Are they conceited? Do they fly off the handle easily and make rash decisions? Are they proud? Are they consumed by a desire for money? Are they lacking in self-control? Are they lovers of pleasure? Beware of such folk. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. If someone isn't following Jesus in the way that they should be, it's going to be obvious. It may not be obvious straight away, but there will be signs that that is the case. A leader's own life and example are the first test of authenticity. Thirdly, Paul said that those to be avoided gloried in their shame. Peter issued a similar warning. They counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Second Peter 2 and verse 13. Those who know they are doing wrong often aim to make it seem right. They pretend there is nothing wrong with greed or sexual immorality or untruthfulness or arrogance, hoping to make things that are desperately wicked seem innocent and acceptable. They find glory in the very things that are their shame. Peter agreed with Paul that such people would face destruction in the end, saying that they would receive the reward of unrighteousness. Verse 13. The fourth mark of those whose example was to be avoided was that they minded earthly things. Like Peter, when he tried to insist that Jesus should not be crucified, they valued not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Mark chapter 8 and verse 33. They had their minds 
on the things of the earth and not on the things of heaven. If there is a basic distinction between authentic and inauthentic followers of Jesus, this is it. Those who follow Christ have their minds set on eternity. Those who do not are consumed by the honors, riches, and pleasures of this life. Paul was pressing toward a heavenly reward and was more than willing to suffer any, anything that came against him, even death, in the pursuit of Christ. False teachers and inauthentic leaders pursue rewards here and now. They crave places of honor, titles of respect, larger offices, greater salaries, and often they indulge themselves in the lusts of the flesh. Their end is destruction. Verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Having spoken of the destruction of those who are enemies of the cross, Paul shifted to the destiny of believers, which is heaven. Those whose minds are on earthly things are destined for destruction. Those who adopt the mind of Christ are bound for heaven. As a matter of fact, our conversation or our walk with God, our citizenship, has already been granted and is already secured through Jesus Christ. We are now looking for the soon return of Jesus to take us to that place that he alone has prepared for us. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. When Jesus returns, our transformation will be completed, and we shall all be changed. Think about that. We're going to be changed. We're not going to be the same any defect we've got in our body, any pain, anything that we're going through, it's all going to disappear with our new body. He will change our, even our vile body and will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Like his body when he was resurrected from the dead. Paul wrote in more detail about this transformation to the Corinthians. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised in imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is, a, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 from the New International Version. While Paul used the concept of flesh to symbolize a broken, sinful condition, he never taught that our bodies are evil. Quite the contrary, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, as 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 says. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. Christ will redeem our bodies, finally restoring all that was lost to us at the fall of mankind way back at the beginning. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all the world. At any given moment in time, it may appear that the enemies of Christ are winning. Especially in this day and age where we see wickedness increasing and increasing and being forced upon everybody more and more and more. But that's not the end of the story. We do not know every plot twist between now and the end, but we have read the last page of history. Jesus Christ will return for his own and every knee shall bow to him. Every tongue will confess his lordship 
and everything, whether created thing, ruler, power, or principality, will be forced to submit to his will. And best of all, we will be united with him, having been united with him in his death, through um, baptism, through repentance, we will be transformed with him into his glory. This is the destiny of every believer, the ultimate prize. Next slide, please. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. The word therefore connects this call to perseverance to the previous chapter, which cast a grand vision of the Christian's future transformation into the full likeness of Christ. In one sense, then, this statement is the concluding scripture to Philippians 3. Because we have this great hope in heaven, we ought to be steadfast in pursuing Christ. We need to keep moving on. We need to keep moving forward in in walking with him. The word so indicates that Paul's Previous description of seeking hard after the knowledge of Christ and taking heed of good examples in the faith was the manner in which the Philippians should persevere. Stand firm in this way, Paul was saying. However, the verse also introduces the scriptures that follow, which add richness and color to this call. We ought to be steadfast in pursuing Christ, the bride's prize, because we have a future hope. And that perseverance will include unity which is a familiar theme in this letter. It will include joy, it will include gentleness, and it will include peace. Jesus has called us to all of those things. Verse 2. I beseech Euodius and beseech Sintiq that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Two women, Euodius and Sintiq, were involved in a conflict that was serious enough to warrant special mention. Ironically, the women's names meant fragrance and fortunate, but they were causing an unfortunate odour within the fellowship. We do not know the nature of the disagreement, but only that it was serious enough to address publicly. Paul urged them to be of the same mind in the Lord, echoing his appeal in chapter 2, verse 2. When two people share the mind of Christ, they can be in one accord. Doubtless, there will always be small disagreements over trivial matters. Everyone has their own tastes, personality, opinions, and manner of doing things. However, on the larger matter of loving God and loving others, there will be harmony. How many church quarrels have to do with things that are essentially meaningless? Things unrelated to winning souls to Christ or building them up in the faith. How much of our energy is diverted by squabbles about music, schedules, the assignment of responsibilities, or the decision to install chairs versus pews in the church's worship center? If we think such disagreements do no damage to the cause of Christ, we fool ourselves. We risk losing momentum, opportunities, and the strength of our witness in the world when we cannot agree on things that are of no importance for eternity. Let us all be of the same mind in the Lord. Let's not let things that don't matter cause us to have disagreements or to be critical of the church or people in the church. 
That's a big tool of Satan to cause disunity. Verse 3, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul's correction here was not a harsh rebuke. It was given with gentleness and respect, for he noted also that these women had served with him in gospel ministry. Paul's aim was to gently correct them, not to punish them. To assist in ending this dispute, Paul appealed for the help of others. The first was likely a person named Syzygis, which is translated in the King James Version as true yoke fellow. Or it may have been that Paul used that designation for a particular Christian whose name we do not know. The second was Clement, another Philippian about whom we know no little. And Paul also appealed to other fellow laborers to lend a hand, meaning others among the church at Philippi. It was important that there were no divisions. It was important that the church was moving forward in one mind, in one accord. It was important for the work of God. That this matter be dealt with. Philippians verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. To be joyful is to be grateful. And to be grateful is to be joyful. The last thing Paul wanted for the church was that they feel sorry for themselves or for him or to to descend into naysaying, complaining and bickering. Negative thinking leads to negative talk, which in turn leads to negative actions. On the other hand, gratitude produces joy, unity and hope. When we think more about the blessings God has granted us than the few things that may be wrong in our lives, it will be impossible to have a feeling of entitlement, which is the root of complaining and bickering. When you think about it, all of that comes from feeling entitled. I should have had this. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't, they shouldn't have treated me that way. The worse things get, the more important it is to count our blessings and be thankful for all that God has done. When we do, we experience the joy of the Lord. Sometimes we believe that our circumstances are simply too oppressive to allow us to feel gratitude or joy. Admittedly, we do face difficult challenges in life, such as rejection, disability, illness, abuse, or grief. Yet we see that Paul experienced all of that and continued to feel grateful to God for his gracious salvation and was joyful despite his condition. He was talking about joy many times in this, in this book, but he was in chains. He was locked up in a prison in Rome. He could still feel joy, even though he was in the worst of situations and circumstances. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He said that in the book of Philippians earlier. But he could still feel joy. Certainly, there are times when we must stop to feel the experience of pain, grief, or some form of loss. God does not call us to be superhuman. To have joy in the Lord does not mean we do not acknowledge the pain we feel in life. Yet, in time, we can return to an attitude of gratitude. God has indeed blessed us with a great hope and future, and that can be a source of non-ending, unending joy despite the circumstances that we must endure. 
Asking questions such as the following can help in recovering a sense of gratitude and the joy that comes with it. How have I experienced the presence of God today? What undeserved blessings has God given to me? And when we think about it, there are so many. There are so many. What might God be helping me to learn through my current circumstances? What new blessing or experience does my current hardship make possible? What new doors has it opened up? How can I help and encourage others through what I am going through? To who can I be a blessing today? The experience of joy does not depend on our circumstances. It never has and it never will. It depends on having an attitude of gratitude, hope and trust in the Lord that he's got it all in control. Next verse. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. The word translated moderation can have a variety of meanings, including patience, softness, modesty, forbearance, and reasonableness. It describes that courtesy and graciousness which should characterize a Christian. It is the opposite of stubbornness and thoughtlessness. Most people can display this virtue at times when the circumstances are are good enough, when the wind's moving the right way. But Paul said it should be known unto all. That becomes more difficult. It is easy to be considerate, kind, and gentle towards some persons, but everyone knows someone who tests their ability to display moderation. The harder task is to display gentleness or reasonableness toward those who are unkind, thankless, rude, or spiteful. Yet, if there is to be unity within the church or in any, in any place where you have a relationship with someone, Someone must be willing to be gentle, reasonable, and forgiving. Let that be you, Paul advised. In every situation, you should display the humility of Christ. Think about what Christ endured on his way to the cross. He endured complete humiliation, and he calls us to follow his steps. And he didn't didn't bite back. He allowed it to happen. Because he had his eyes on the prize. He had his eyes on, on us. He knew the end game. The Lord is at hand refers to both Jesus' second coming, which Paul knew could happen at any moment, and also to the fact that Jesus lives inside us and is always near to us. As the tongue interpretation said this morning, he is near and close to us. It's a great reason to do these things. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. To be careful for nothing is to refuse to take on anxiety or worry for any reason. Remember, we've been talking about Martha recently. She was troubled and worried about many things, but... Mary was able to relax. Mary was able to soak up Jesus' presence at his feet. This is essentially the same advice that Jesus offered in his Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need 
of all these things. Matthew 6, 31 to 32. Jesus has said that he's going to provide all of our needs. He's going to be there with us until the very end. He knows what we're going through. He knows the path and he knows where we're at. And he has said he's going to be with us. No matter what we go through, he's going to be there. He's going to bring us through. The reason for confidence in both cases is the same. The loving nature of God. Paul urged the Philippians to surrender their concerns to God and be at peace. Easier said than done, but he has made a way. He has made a provision for that to happen for us. In Philippians 4.6, we find two additional words associated with prayer. Supplication and thanksgiving. These words are often used in conjunction with prayer. We begin, we begin in prayer by adoration, as Jesus taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. By beginning our prayers with an emphasis on God and his nature and worshipping him for who he is, we ensure that we do not ask in an ungrateful manner or ask without confidence in God's ability to supply. When we worship him, we're saying he's in control. He is great. He is greater than anything, than our situations. And we need to trust in that and believe in that and come to him with that attitude and with that focus. Sister Emma talked recently about coming to him in the right way and praying in the right way. God is good and great and powerful and trustworthy. He's rescued his children time and time again and provided for every conceivable need. When we pray, we should remember who God is and his long history of providing for his children. If you have a need, we should be able to come to his throne with confidence, with boldness, because we know that he is great. He has all power and he has everything in his hands and in his control. We also are called to make supplication, which we sometimes refer to our prayer list where we begin to ask for what we need. True prayer never attempts to manipulate God or tries to tell him what to do. Our eloquence, our energy, and our emotion will never move God to action. We can't force God to do things or do what we ask. That's never been the case and it never will be. Instead, prayer moves us into position to receive what God has already promised. Prayer changes us. Prayer allows us to put things in his hands. Prayer allows us to be God. Oh, sorry, not to us to be God, but allows us to let him be God. We will never be God. Just thought I'd uh, clarify that. Um, Philippians 4 and 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer produces results. And when we pray right, in the right way, the peace of God can rule in our hearts and minds. Have you ever been in a situation where you can't find peace? We, we can have that peace because God has made provision for that. Our feelings can affect our thinking and then our thinking can affect our choices. We need to pray and we need God's peace to rule so we can make the choices that fit our kingdom purpose rather than our own will and desires or or taking actions based on how we feel at that particular point in time, which we'll always regret later. Paul revealed that through this peace, we experience triumph in two areas, in our hearts and in our minds. 
Our heart can be moved by wrong feelings and our mind can be troubled by wrong thinking. But when we pray the way that Jesus wants us to pray, the Holy Ghost will produce something greater in our lives. It delivers us from negative emotions and toxic feelings that cause us to backslide and even become destructive in the lives of others. When we lift everything up to Him and leave it at His feet, He will bring that peace that passes all understanding. God may not always remove the problems that were the initial cause of our anxiety, but he promises that peace which passes all understanding. It is a peace that the world cannot provide, but he can. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So often we let ourselves get troubled with our circumstances and our situations. That's not what Jesus has called us to. John 16, 33, these things have I, I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's an overcoming. We don't have to be afraid. We can have that peace. To be free from worry is a very real possibility. For those who are prone to worry, that might seem strange and difficult but Jesus calls us all to that though it seems impossible by human standards and by human standards it is impossible the spirit of God is able to protect our hearts and minds from anxiety even in the most difficult circumstances this is a blessing from the Lord that must be experienced to be fully understood if you've ever been in a trial in a situation where it just seems like there's a huge storm around you and there's nothing you can do. You, you feel like you're being tossed and turned. And then all of a sudden, you have this peace that you cannot possibly have in normal circumstances. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. That is the kind of peace that Jesus offers us. Yet, it is real. It has to be experienced to be fully understood. It is real. When we practice praying the right way, we find a supernatural sense of peace. When we approach Him in the right way, when we leave our problems and our situations with Him, He gives that peace. If I could get someone to the piano, please, and if you could stand. I can really feel the Lord moving in this place. And we've gone through a few verses, quite a few verses this morning. But there is a theme. And Jesus is calling those who are in situations where they cannot find peace. Jesus is calling those who have not been able to to give their circumstances over to Him. They They might even feel like they're entitled to have these feelings and and bitterness and and perhaps feelings against other people in the church. But Jesus is calling you. He wants to give you that peace that passes all understanding. <laughs> it's impossible outside of Jesus. But he offers that to you today. And if you find that you've been letting little things affect your attitude and your spirit, things that just don't matter, Jesus calls out to you this morning. Just let it go. It's nothing. 
it's not worth it. Let's walk together in unity. Let's not have these, these attitudes towards other people. Let's not have these attitudes towards the pastor. Let's not have this, this disunity within us. It was so important that these women who had worked with Paul be reunited, work together, that he called others to help in the process. We want to follow Jesus the way that he wants us to follow him. If you find that your walk has been kind of gone backwards a little, Jesus calls out to you this morning, get back into training again. Get back into the prayer. Get back into the word. Don't let your circumstances dictate your training and the way that you follow Jesus. He calls out to you 